and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Ben Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. My guest is Marie Amelie George, Assistant Professor of Law at Wake Forest Law School. We will discuss her article, Framing Trans Rights, which is forthcoming in the Northwestern University Law Review. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you again for, for coming on. This is a, it's a great paper. I've enjoyed reading it and wanted to talk to you about it. So you're, you're a legal historian and you write about the history of LGBT rights addressing, you know, how and why our laws have changed. Reading, reading this piece opened my eyes to how a lot of intentional strategic decisions shape the course of the LGBT rights movement and how those same choices create a lot of complexities now particularly for trans people. So, so let's, let's, let's start with you know, sort of talking about what the world is like for trans people today. What are, what are the rough identity distributions of the nation's transgender population? Okay. Um, so um, the, the trans population, I should say, is changing. Um, and it is changing in terms of age demographics. Um, so in the most recent survey of uh, U.S. transgender adults, um, about a third um, identified as uh, non-binary. Um, so some trans individuals um, identify as men, some um, are women, um, and some identify as non-binary, meaning they don't identify as either or they identify as both or uh, it's variable. And um, the percentage of people who identify as non-binary is higher among uh, LGBTQ youth. Um, So the percentage is changing. Um, So I would say that um, it's it's hard to get a firm firm statement about what uh, the U.S. transgender population looks like because it's variable and it's changing. Right. So, so, so the, the, a lot of people have this idea that, that when someone is trans, they're moving from, from one identity to another. And there, there's, there's some truth to that, but a lot of people are, are, are in the space in between. And that's, that's where, that's where their, their true identity lies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, part of that is um, it, that the description of you know people transition um, and identify as male or identify as female is absolutely accurate, but that is a part of the transgender population. It is not the entirety of it, um, and what transitioning means is really different for different people. Um, so it might involve um, changing outward appearance. It might involve. Uh, Hormones. It might involve uh, surgical interventions, some surgery, uh, more surgery, but it's it's really individual, individually right. determined, and um, the law really does assume that people are going to transition to a specific sex as opposed to inhabit a liminal space between. So, so there's this there's this sense that that, that people who are not transitioning in the ways that other people would expect. There, there, there's, is there like a belief that they're just not doing trans right? Or how, how does, it, it seems kind of like forced that you, that even within that space, there's, there's sort of a pressure toward particular identities. It's not that there's a pressure towards particular identities so much as 
um, the um, the laws around trans identity really developed around a medical model that um, right. was focused on transitioning, um, and therefore the options haven't really developed. It's not so much that uh, people in the trans community think that there is one way. It's just right. I think the law hasn't caught up to the multiplicity of identities. Right. So, so I, I remember this, uh, you know, in the context of uh, birth certificates that you know some states uh, or vital records jurisdictions would require particular surgeries before recognizing a change, and that that seems to to for you know to, to the legal categories don't align with what's really happening. That's and there's been a big movement away from that, um, so that. Um, most states no longer require surgeries. Um, most do require uh, some kind of attestation by a medical provider. Um, but there isn't. There is now um, a movement to having um, options for uh, non-binary designations on birth certificates, um, and I think the current count is six states permit that, either on birth certificates or uh, driver's licenses. So, so when people come out and, and transition or you know, begin to transition in space, what, what kind of experiences are they having? Um, what are their lives like? And it varies. It, it, it really varies. Um, what trans individuals report is, um, is a vast amount of discrimination. Um, it ranges in terms of um, what it looks like, um, but quite a lot of harassment, uh, verbal and physical, uh, discrimination in employment um, and housing. It's one of the reasons why um, one third of trans individuals report experiencing homelessness at one point in their lives. Oh, that's, that's just so hard. It is. So, so, so much of what we've seen in this space has really come um, you know, at the ballot box and, and you do a great job in the article of tracing all these different you know, campaigns. Like how did, how did LGBT rights end up at the ballot over and over and over? Um, so that dates back to 1974. The first um, effort to repeal gay rights at the ballot box was in Boulder in 1974. And from there, it just continued onwards. Um, and it became a very useful rallying cry um, for um, the religious right um, in the in the late 70s. And then um, it there were really hundreds of um, state and local ballot measures um, to either repeal um, sexual orientation anti-discrimination laws um, or prohibit the state from protecting people based on sexual orientation. Um, and that was really the focus of a lot of the ballot box efforts until uh, the late 90s um, when we had the marriage movement. So, so how did early LGBT campaigns that were they're opposing these kinds of measures now, how did they frame their issues? What kind of ads would they use? What would they tell the public to try to get their support? Um, so the the arguments against LGBT rights um, shifted first from um, immorality and a danger to children to the notion that gays and lesbians were asking for special rights and special protections. And uh, gay and lesbian rights advocates uh, attempted to respond to that um, First, in arguments about, um, you know, gays and lesbians are like everybody else. And um, then, you know, 
gays and lesbians were not asking for um, any kind of special rights, right. just equal rights. And so this notion of equal rights and equality and fairness, um, those themes really continued throughout the campaigns. So were, were these you know, equality themes successful on the whole? Was that, was that framing of the issue? What, did, it, did it work? Um, it's hard to, to answer. It's um, the, the ballot measures were overwhelmingly successful um, until. Um, so when we say uh, the, ballot the late 90s and then sort of the efforts to repeal gay and lesbian rights were overwhelmingly successful um, until marriage hits the ballot. And then right. as voters are. Um, putting in bans on same-sex marriage, uh, they're no longer willing to repeal sexual orientation anti-discrimination laws. So they're uphold they're they're voting against the repeal of right. of anti-discrimination laws. It's like you can't have so marriage, vote- but you can have anti-discrimination laws. Okay, so they'll they'll grant so voters were granting anti-discrimination, they weren't granting marriage. Yes. And so so what kind of advertising did we see around the marriage ballot measures? Like what, like, how, why, how are they able to succeed with marriage when they couldn't succeed with anti-discrimination? Well, so they, so they were losing marriage and winning anti-discrimination laws. Right. And the message was actually the same on both of those. It was um, the idea of equal rights. Um, why it is the one message you know, works and the other doesn't. I think, you know, anti-discrimination laws become much less scary um, if um, the other thing that's on the ballot seems much more extreme. I think, I think that's what, perhaps what ended up happening. Um, but um, the, the marriage ads, um, the marriage campaigns at the ballot started in 1998 in Hawaii and Alaska. And, um, the arguments there was that were that taking the way, away the rights of um, one group would lead to others losing their rights. So in Hawaii, um, the ads focused on Japanese internment, um, the civil rights movement, that if civil rights had been put to a popular vote, um, that uh, racial minorities wouldn't have rights today. Um, and those did not resonate with voters. Okay. So... So voters were, they just weren't buying the, the civil rights argument in the same volume we would expect. Um, so, so what, I guess, was it, was it Proposition 8 in California where, uh, I think, was, was this in 2000 and, you know this so much better than me, it's 2006, 2007? 2008 is Prop 8. So there's between 1998 when we have the first uh, marriage ballot measures uh, to 2008, LGBT rights groups are looking at um, these campaigns, why it is the public opinion um, isn't changing uh, in their favor, and doing a lot of public opinion testing of messaging. And um, there's a period of debate, particularly in the mid and early 2000s, about um, what kind of messages really resonate with voters. And what they're hearing over and over again is... Um, Voters don't understand why gays and lesbians want marriage, um, right. as because the the ads are talking about equality of rights, and 
there are lots of things that gays and lesbians can do to have the same rights of marriage without the title marriage. So why is marriage so important? And um, what happened in, um, in 2008 with the Prop 8 in California is um, California, uh, California's court had, um, had legalized marriage. So the Prop 8 campaign was about taking it away as opposed to instituting it uh, for the first time or making it not possible. Um, and uh, there was one county where um, a group decided to try testing a different message than equality and fairness. And that county, Santa Barbara, was the only county in Southern California to vote um, for marriage equality. And the messaging they used there was really about um, what the what marriage means, its uh, emotional value, um, right. why people really want to get married and make that commitment. And so um, the framing, it showed the importance of framing it in a different way. So, so it seemed like voters didn't understand the civil rights issue, but they understood the emotional frame, uh, or they were you know, more willing to support when it was was framed that way. Can, can we? Is Santa Barbara's population somehow different than other parts of California? Can we know for sure that that was what did it? We, we I don't think we can know. I think there were a lot of factors happening. Um, I mean, to keep in mind that um, Massachusetts had um, decided Goodridge, um, which Institute of Marriage Equality in 2003. So people have had time to adjust. Um, And it isn't, I don't think there's a definite causal effect between the ads that people are seeing and uh, people, you know, changing their minds on marriage equality. Um, But LGBT rights groups certainly believed that it would have an effect. And I think it's a logical matter. People don't change their beliefs in a vacuum. They're taking into account different inputs and that changes the output. And I think the the ads, the messaging, the frames that they're getting is just one of those inputs. And um, the, the correlation really is striking on um, the, the sheer number of ballot measures that LGBTQ rights groups lost uh, before they changed their uh, frames and the ones that they started winning after. So this, this is such a, it's a tricky thing to, to tease out. What was it the change in the framing or was it just the growth of the movement over time? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's, it's probably, you know, I would, I would think it's probably both. Probably. Um, I, I, the, I don't know that you can pinpoint one or the other, um, but right. I, would, I would say that it, it contributes to it. Yeah. So, so the, as, so as after the, the new framing is adopted, uh, change seems to come relatively you know, rapidly. So, so how, how are these ads different? You, you, you call them you know, assimilationist. Uh, what, what, um, what, what's, what, what would these ads look like? What, are they, what did you see? So if in 1998 um, in Hawaii, the ad talked about how um, if taking away the rights of one group um, is like Japanese internment and uh, – preventing the civil rights movement from happening. Um, in Maine in 2012, um, it is featuring parents and grandparents who explain they've had long and loving marriages, and they just want their children to have the same thing that they had, and that they never dreamed of one day getting a civil union. They dreamed of marriage, and that marriage is meaningful. 
Um, so it is a very, um, it's a very different type of argument. It is one that appeals to emotion. Um, and the theme is really of love, commitment, and family and continuity. And, and, and so it's, it, it, it seems to counter directly the argument that the civil union is just as good. Yes. It, it explains why it is that marriage itself is important because it's no longer just about the rights. It's about having entering in the same uh, type of uh, meaningful union as everybody else. So in, in this, it, it's, I'm sort of making a false distinction between equal rights and assimilationism because you want the same equal right to enter right. Into this marital union. Um, but it's not saying we want this because we are equal. It's we want this because um, just like everybody else, these are our hopes and dreams and how we express our love and commitment. We are deserving of respect. Yes. And so that's, that's, that's huge. Yes. So, so let's, so the, the debate and the, the controversy, or it seems like a lot of the, the attacks now have shifted toward gender identity protections. So, so a lot of the anti-discrimination laws have gender identity protections. What, what are these, what are these aim to do? What are we, what are we seeking to protect here? Um, discrimination um, based, just gender identity discrimination protects against um, discrimination based on, on transgender or transitioning um, or persistently refusing to use uh, someone's uh, gender pronoun. So um, it adds uh, another, another layer of protection beyond gender and sex and sex stereotyping to really protect transgender individuals from discrimination. So, so why are, so it seems like the, the, the push now to take rights away is, is aiming at gender identity. It, it is. And that's uh, in large part, I think, because most Americans support gay and lesbian rights. Um, that, that was a lot of the fight in marriage equality and public opinion uh, shifted decidedly. Um, but gays, um, but Americans are much more conflicted when it comes to trans rights. And so trans rights is a wedge issue in the way that gay and lesbian rights once were. Right. And so it seems like much of the, the rhetoric has shifted to bathrooms, uh, like, you know, bathroom access. Why, why do you, why do you think they're, they're focused on bathrooms? Uh, a couple of reasons. One is that it's one of the few sort of ubiquitous sex segregated spaces uh, that most of us enter into. So it's one of right. the few places where we're going to think about this. Um, and relatedly, and it's bathrooms have been historically a focal point for Right struggles, I think, for that reason. Um, so bathrooms uh, were an issue in uh, ending Jim Crow. Uh, bathrooms became a rallying cry around the ERA. And um, that's because the idea is that since it's a sex-segregated space and it's a space where uh, people are partially unclothed, um, the idea is that that renders you more vulnerable in that area. Um, so this, this fear... You know, a lot of these these ads you discuss seem to be stoking fear around bad behavior or the, the the prospect of potential bad behavior in bathrooms. What are 
what's the parade of horribles that's being trotted out if we protect trans people? There, there are two separate kinds. Um, the first, um, I guess the initial sort of horrible that, that emerged um, was that um, these laws would create loopholes that sexual predators would just run through. So um, that sexual predators would, um, you, would go into um, women's restrooms to assault women and children, and they would claim they had a right to be there because of gender identity protections, which is, um, uh, I mean, the law doesn't protect them, but that right. was the argument. Yeah. And then the second argument is um, is that maybe we really shouldn't be protecting trans individuals because there's something deviant about trans identity. And we don't, it, having a trans person in, say, a locker room makes everybody else uncomfortable and we don't really want trans individuals to be there. So it's, it's essentially just saying that we should not accept trans people as equal members of society. Pretty much, yeah. Ugh. So, so with these ads uh, you know, around equality and ballot measures uh, and you know, protecting, I guess, LGBT rights, how, how have trans people been portrayed inside the assimilationist frame? I guess, like, what, what, what are we, where do we see trans people in the, in the ads for equality? Um, so that has changed over time. Um, the efforts to repeal um, gender identity protections um, have been ongoing for, for quite a while. And um, opponents of LGBTQ rights really started um, focusing on on the gender identity protections in about 2012, um, you know, right. putting out this parade of horribles. And at that point, um, LGBTQ rights groups just weren't really sure how to respond. And so they just didn't talk about trans individuals at all. Um, and in this past year, um, in 2018, um, the ballot measures are only seeking to repeal gender identity protections. And now uh, LGBTQ rights groups are featuring transgender individuals, but it's only uh, binary uh, right. trans individuals. So trans men and trans women. So that, that gender, you know, you, I think you called them, you know, run-of-the-mill gender nonconformist, or that's just the... What, what, where are they in these ads? Uh, they, they're, they're just not there. Um, and so the trans men and trans women um, are very much a significant part of the, and, and a large part of the trans community. And that is a very accurate portrayal of many of the people whose lives are being affected by these laws. But there's also a large part of the trans community that isn't being portrayed um, as part of these campaigns. So, so if, if you're running a sort of an assimilationist uh, frame, uh, do, do you see, I guess, trans people who appear uh, fully transitioned? Uh, like, what kind of ads do we see? Like, a, for, for, for a trans man uh, to, to appear in an ad, what would that look like? Um, so it looks like a... Um, so- Someone who, if you did not know this person was a trans individual, um, you would um, 
So are we talking about people with passing privileges? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, individuals who appear in a suit and tie and beard um, in sort of traditionally masculine activities or um, a um, trans woman wearing a sparkly dress and heels and makeup um, pulling um, or pulling, you know, cookies out of the oven, sort of things that really lean into uh, traditional gender roles. And so, so the what 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 I what I read was that you, we have, um, you know, ads which which sort of ask the viewer to, you know, do you want to send this woman into a men's bath a man's bathroom, or do you want to send this man into the women's restroom? And it and it portrays you know these fully transitioned people, which is which is true, and it is it is what would happen if these laws uh, were passed or were or these protections were taken away. Um, but, but what happens to the folks who, who don't have the same passing privilege? Where are they? Yeah. And that's, that's part of the, what I think is problematic about it. So, I mean, one of the reasons groups are doing this is because it, it's very effective. Um, they're seeing that, um, the parade of horribles that opponents are putting forward just isn't accurate. And that, um, that trans men are in fact men and trans women are in fact women. Um, but there's a whole group of people, um, who, um, don't fit our gender binary. And, um, it is very difficult and sometimes very dangerous for them to, um, have to go into a sex segregated space um, when they don't. And um, those are the individuals who are often policed. And um, there's, there's a missed opportunity to, um, to raise questions about um, why it is that we insist on policing gender norms in these spaces. So, so you, you frame it really nicely in the paper and there's a, there's a small quote from it that I wanted to just read. You know, what the ballot measure campaigns asked voters was thus where to draw the boundary between two sexes, a biology or self-presentation. Those who did not fit within the two categories were simply not part of the conversation. Yeah, this is the, I mean, it's, the conversation has really been about um, how, how are we defining sex and gender? Um, Part of the debate was, you know, really, you know, are you are you male and female because you were born that way or um, because you identify that way? And that is an important conversation. Um, and it is it has been hard to get people to that point um, and asking people to take the next step and say, what about people who don't really fit this binary at all? Um, that's that that's a big ask. But there are a lot of people who do not fit that. And so, so this is oftentimes we're asking for, for empathy toward your people who are different than you uh, in some way. Like if you think of yourself and everyone in your family as being firmly within one of these binaries, it may be easier for some people to, to make the jump to someone who's switching from one binary to another. Mm-hmm. But the space in between, it seems, it seems challenging. Yeah. And um, so, what are, what are the costs of of not talking about this? Like you, 
you, you cover you know, how you know, this kind of advocacy and you know, just you know, framing it as the binary and, and leaving out the gender nonconforming sort of muddles the field uh, when you go and you look at uh, what's happening in court. Like, what's, what's going on there? So in court, um, I look at um, issues with Title VII and Title IX, um, where advocacy on behalf of LGBTQ rights has really focused on um, those two statutes, prohibition on sex stereotyping. Um, so right. Title VII, Title IX um, prohibit discrimination based on sex, which the Supreme Court has interpreted to mean um, also sex stereotyping. And um, from there, LGBTQ rights groups have expanded this um, in, in many circuits successfully to say um, sexual orientation, discrimination, um, and uh, gender identity discrimination is a type of sex stereotyping discrimination because right. you are discriminating against people for not conforming to your belief about what a quote unquote real man or woman should be. Um, but uh, paradoxically, these ballot measure campaigns, um, which uh, you know, really feature uh, individuals in, you know, within a gender binary and in gender stereotypical ways, seem to reinforce uh, sex stereotypes. So it creates a bit of a tension within um, within the strategic efforts. So you, you also talk about, uh, you know, fra- you know, factual erasure uh, and you know, what it, what it really means to sort of, you know, pull these people out of the, the conversation. How would we, how would we put them, uh, I'm going to borrow from Hamilton here. How do we put them back into the narrative? Like what sorts of, you know, campaigns in the future might, might do more to, to show, to tell their stories? Yeah. So I think one of the the challenges in any sort of uh, social movement campaign is how much can you press and still win um, your ultimate goal? So um, I I think it is um, part of it is we we absolutely these groups really absolutely want to make sure to secure gender identity discriminations, uh, anti-discrimination protections. um, And the fear is that by featuring uh, non-binary individuals, they will they will lose the uh, ultimate war. They'll win the fight, but w- lose the war. Um, and I argue that um, it's not all or nothing. Um, so it's possible to incorporate non-binary individuals um, by having them talk about why the laws are important to them and the discrimination they've endured in the same way as they have trans individuals to talk about that um, and have the same kind of emotive appeal and messaging that um, the marriage equality campaign had. Um, There are quite a few um, ads that feature family members talking about their fears for their children. Um, If you're going to have family members talk about why it is that they are anxious for their transgender children, you could just as easily have them talk about non-binary children as binary trans children. Um, And I think another strategy is really... um, having people who have been um, policed from restrooms for not conforming to gender norms who aren't trans. Uh, right. I, talk about this. Yeah. this the, one of the stories, it was, um, it was a woman with short hair. Mm-hmm. And what, what happened? 
So in the wake of HB2, North Carolina's law, uh, so-called bathroom bill, uh, that required people to use um, the bathroom of their sex assigned at birth, um, there was an increase in sort of policing of people going into bathrooms everywhere. And it was a lot of um, cisgender women who were asked to leave the restroom um, because it's uh, really anyone who doesn't conform to gender norms or stereotypes of how men and women should be that are asked to leave sex segregated spaces. Um, so it's women with short hair or who are wearing um, not stereotypically feminine clothing who are just asked to leave the restroom by other patrons or by security. So, so, so there's, there's, there's policing of who can pee if the person who wants to pee has a pixie cut. Yes. Ugh. <laughs> so, so the, so that you, you have people. So if these protections go away, you'll have people who just wear their hair differently, who are caught up uh, in these sort of broader battles over stall surveillance. Yeah. And we, we think about stall surveillance as being, you know, people doing this to other people, but then, um, individuals call the police and then the state gets involved and it becomes a state action against individuals. Ugh. So, so you, you, you talk about you know, this broad coalition uh, within the LGBT movement. And one of the, the things that you bring out is that there's different voices within the coalition. Uh, but it, it seems like there's also the, the, the trans community also has this huge breadth and diversity within it as well. And what happens if we, we win you know, gender identity protections in a way that, that doesn't tell the full story? It makes it perhaps a little bit more difficult or it takes longer to get protections for everybody else. And I un- I think most lawyers at least recognize that uh, change is incremental, but the question is, does it have to be done in that way? If there's a way to get at the change faster, why not adopt those strategies? And so if you, if you adopt the the quickest possible strategy, Mm -hmm. what's the risk that your, your win might not stand? Or if you, if you, I'm thinking about this from the financial regulation perspective, where uh, you know the industry pushed through a number of changes, and there's going to be backlash. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you how do you win in a way where your win endures? That's the inevitable question. Um, I think there's there's always backlash. There's always a move and a counter move, and then a counter counter move. And part of it is um, being ready for um, what the inevitable response is going to be. Um, so thinking through both um, what it means to get the law in place um, and how to produce uh, enduring um, public opinion change that will sustain that law once you have it there. Well, uh, I I think the chances of of getting enduring and real uh, wins are increasing with, with more work like this. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
This is Adley Stevenson. I've tried as best I could to discuss the real issues facing you and me and all the American people in the four years to come. The time for decision is now at hand. On Tuesday, November 4th, you and I will vote to help decide who should be president. For all our sakes, I urge you to go to the polls. I sincerely hope you will vote for me, but most of all, I hope you will vote. Thank you for giving me this time. This is Adley Stevenson. I've tried as best I could to discuss the real issues facing you and me and all the American people in the four years to come. The time for decision is now at hand. On Tuesday, November 4th, you and I will vote to help decide who should be president. For all our sakes, I urge you to go to the polls. I sincerely hope you will vote for me, but most of all, I hope you will vote. Thank you for giving me this time. This is Adley Stevenson. I've tried as best I could to discuss the real issues facing you and me and all the American people in the four years to come. The time for decision is now at hand. On Tuesday, November 4th, you and I will vote to help decide who should be president. For all our sakes, I urge you to go to the polls. I sincerely hope you will vote for me, but most of all, I hope you will vote. Thank you for giving me this time. This is Adley Stevenson. I've tried as best I could to discuss the real issues facing you and me and all the American people in the four years to come. The time for decision is now at hand. On Tuesday, November 4th, you and I will vote to help decide who should be president. For all our sakes, I urge you to go to the polls. I sincerely hope you will vote for me, but most of all, I hope you will vote. Thank you for giving me this time.